This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 11 Pale Gray Casket. The funeral of Abigail Tomlinson was an event of widespread interest. Every family in the district was represented. School was closed for three days because Richard was a township trustee. The services were conducted at the house with the choir from the Woodridge Church singing Rock of Ages and Lead Kindly Light. Mr. Jamison spoke briefly, too briefly in some people's opinion. There was talk afterward about how he skimped in his praise of the deceased. You'd have thought the woman was alive and well the way he ignored her. It was true that the minister had little to say about Abigail, except that God had now released her from her sufferings. He spoke with sympathy of the bereaved husband and two small sons, but his real tribute was paid to the small, gray-haired woman who sat between Richard and his children, as though gathering all three beneath her wing. Aunt Tomlinson, and who that has had sickness or death or calamity in his house does not know her, can rest assured that these children are not left without a mother, and that this man is not left without a stout a heart as God ever put in a woman's breast to cheer him through his trouble. There were moist eyes and the weather-beaten faces at that. Everyone loved Miss Anne. Abigail looked surprisingly young in death. The lines which illness had etched upon her face were magically erased. She looked fair and fragile as she lay in her pale gray casket. This matter of the casket caused comment. It was the first time that anything except black for an adult had ever been seen in the county. Richard had sent to Indianapolis for it, and that in itself lent a kind of glamour to the woman who lay within it. It stood before the drawn curtains of the alcove, facing the clock, which no longer told the hours. More than one person remarked afterward that the face of the dead woman was slightly turned toward the clock as though listening for it to strike. She was buried in the family burial ground on the hill. Young Will Tomlinson, Mr. Otis House, Lucius Goff, and John Barclay carried the casket to its final resting place. The plot already held the graves of Roger Tomlinson, four children who had died in infancy, and Millie's husband. Abigail died between midnight and dawn of a Friday night. She was not buried until the following Wednesday. During the interim, the body lay in the unheated front room, and people went about on tiptoe. 
The house was hushed and its inhabitants lived withdrawn. Judith found the interval of waiting almost unendurable. She spent most of her time with the children. There was the chance that, by keeping close to Richard's sons, she might see him more often. But whether purposely or unintentionally, he seemed to avoid her. She saw him only at mealtimes. The restlessness possessed her. It made it almost impossible for her to stay in the house. It drove her to take long walks with the children. Once out of doors, she talked of anything and everything except the somber circumstance that was throwing them so much together. She told them stories, even jokes of a subdued nature, and was altogether so pleasant a companion that the little boys clamored to be with her. They were awed but not saddened by their mother's death. Abigail had been merely a disquieting presence in their lives, too long for them to feel any great sense of loss. So, while they behaved with gloomy propriety within the house, once out of doors, their walks with Judith became increasingly pleasant excursions. Thus, it was with Richard's sons, not so with Thorn. Thorn, who of all people should have felt no loss in Abigail, was silent, grave, and thoughtful. Judith became exasperated with her. She finally took her to task. It was the day before the funeral, and Judith, knowing the ordeal in store for them, was anxious to give the little boys a pleasant time. She had taken them for a tramp through the sugar orchard, where snow lay thick crusted on the ground, again after the February thaw. They had come out above the pond, and the boys had discovered good sound ice upon its surface, and soon were making a slide. They shouted to Thorn, who stood on the bank, not joining in the sport. Come on, Thorn, come on and slide. Yes, Thorn, why don't you go play with them? Asked Judith. Thorn did not answer. She stood with her back to the raw march wind, looking cold and pinched and unhappy. Judith said impatiently, What's the matter, Thorn? Thorn looked at the schoolmistress strangely. She could not put into words her vague, foreboding fears regarding this woman. Neither could she explain the dread in her own heart, which she was yet too young to understand. She whispered, I think it would have been better if Miss Abigail hadn't died. For a second, Judith's determined cheerfulness froze. Then she rallied. Of course, Thorn, we all wish that Miss Abigail hadn't died. We feel very sad about her death, but we should not show our sadness to the children. It makes it harder for them. That's not what I meant. Thorn's candid brow puckered in a frown. I'm not sad about Miss Abigail. She made Richard very unhappy. On his account, I'm glad she's gone. That's a terrible thing to say, said Judith sternly. Yeah, I know. Again, that elfin look came into Thorn's eyes. Do you suppose she knows? Who knows? said Judith sharply. Miss Abigail. I would hate for her to know how we feel about her dying. What do you mean how we feel? Judith's voice rose shrilly. 
Be careful how you include other people in your remarks. I'm sorry, I thought you felt the same way I did. Well, you thought wrong. I have nothing but the deepest regret for Mrs. Tomlinson's death. The strange child nodded. That's what I mean. Now that she's gone... I think maybe it would have been better if she hadn't died. There was company for supper following the funeral, friends and relatives who have driven from afar to attend the services. As many as could be accommodated stayed overnight. The strange faces at the table, the added bustle in the dining room and kitchen, lent an air of somber conviviality to the house. Miss Anne and Millie worked for three days preparing the feast which they knew would be expected, and which really justified Cousin Ludy Sims' unfailing tribute on such occasions. My, my, regular harvest dinner. Judith found the change of atmosphere exhilarating after the oppressive silence of the last five days. But if she had hoped for a reestablishment of her old, subtle contact with Richard, she was disappointed. He sat at the head of the table, hospitably attentive to the needs of his guests, but dignified and remote, except for exchanging a few words with Otis Hoos who sat on his right as nearest relative of the deceased. The newly made widower was silent throughout the meal. This was approved by all present. Privately, no one believed for a moment that Richard felt anything but relief for his wife's death, and speculation was already rife as to how soon he would marry again. But his behavior as a bereaved husband was beyond criticism. Judith was seated midway of the long table, with Lucius Goff on her left and young Will Tomlinson on her right. Of the two, she found it easier to talk to Will. This was odd for the 18-year-old lad had always been antagonistic and had openly charged her with encouraging his brother in the matter of Thorn. But Will was practical and rather hard-minded. His sister-in-law was dead, and there was no use pretending that all concerned, herself included, weren't better off. Judith found him a comfortable neighbor. On the other hand, Lucius Goff's smile was absurdly unnerving. It seemed to say, Why are you mourning? She flushed under it, though his remark was perfectly innocuous. Have you ever noticed how heartily people eat following a funeral? Perhaps he was only trying to be amusing, but there was a knowing twinkle in his black eyes. Judith looked the other way. It was long after the usual bedtime when she came downstairs with her book, knowing that she was to share her bed with fat cousin Ludy, who probably snored in her sleep. Judith was in no haste to retire. Taking a candle, she slipped down the covered passage to the kitchen. Just after prayers, she had heard Richard say that he would smoke a pipe by the kitchen fire before going to bed. She found him sitting alone before the open grate of the big cook stove. There was no light in the smoke-blackened room except the red gleam of coals through the grating. It made sharp highlights of the man's features changing the familiar outlines of his handsome, open countenance, giving a dark, brooding look to his face. I beg your pardon, I didn't know there was anyone in here. 
At the sound of Judith's voice, he started, almost guiltily, and rose to his feet. Please don't go. I just thought I'd read a bit before going to bed. There's no fire in my room. Judith set her candle on a convenient shelf and drew an old rocker close to the stove. He sat down again without speaking. Judith settled herself with her book and pretended to read. The clock on the shelf ticked noisily. The man seemed oblivious of her presence. When she had turned two pages, she laid her book down and delicately stifled a yawn. When she stole a glance at her silent neighbor, he was looking at her intently. She felt that he had been watching her for some time. Inadvertently, she spoke. What's the matter? He leaned toward her and said in a lowered tone, Do you know anything about that doll? If he had struck her, she could not have recoiled more sharply. Fortunately, the recoil was mental, and the light was poor. You mean Thorn's doll? He nodded. Why do you ask? My wife did not die of membranous croup. What did she die of? Heart attack, following sudden shock. The kitchen clock ticked stridedly above their heads. The book in Judith's lap was slightly clutched with sweating hands. She neither moved nor spoke. When you came to call me that night, you said my wife had wakened from a sound sleep and seemed to be having trouble with her breathing, remember? I remember. Had there been anyone else in the room besides yourself during the night? No one. Did you leave the room at any time? Not until I went to call you. Judith seemed to be having trouble with her own breathing. Why do you ask? When I got down to Abigail's room, I found her clutching her throat and gasping that she was being strangled. She couldn't breathe. She could scarcely speak. Yet she tried to tell me something about the doll. She said she had waked to find it lying on the pillow with a velvet ribbon tied round its neck. The string was tied so tight it was choking her to death. She begged me to cut it so that she could breathe, and all in gasping whispers while she clawed for air. Oh my God, it was pitiful. What did you do? asked Judith. There was nothing I could do. The doll wasn't there. The hands gripping the book relaxed. What did the doctor say? By the time the doctor got there, Abigail was unconscious. Then you didn't tell him about the doll? He looked guiltily. It was too late to do anything. Dr. Caxton seemed to think it was membranous croup. It was membranous croup, wasn't it? He shook his head. It was her heart. I'm sure of it. She always fainted easily. She died of fright. Then it was self-induced. Because you found no doll, did you? I searched everywhere. On the bed, under the bed, there was no doll in the room. There, you see. Pure hallucination. But she described so accurately the ribbon about its neck. 
Do you think she would have mentioned a velvet ribbon if it had been hallucinations? She might, said Judith calmly. Velvet ribbons are the fashion, you know. I wear them myself. She was already having trouble with her breathing when I went to call you. Her imagination started working. The doll was never out of her mind. She began thinking about it and saw it with a velvet ribbon around its neck. And you think that's all she saw? Just an image of her own excited fancy? I do indeed. Then why did she say... He seemed to force the words. When I asked her what became of the doll, why did she say, she knows? Cold sweat drenched Judith's body under her woolen undergarments. I know what you're thinking, Mr. Tomlinson, she said carefully. You're thinking she meant Thorn. No, no. The very fever of his denial was confirmation. The doll belonged to Thorn, of course, and Miss Abigail always believed she had it hidden somewhere. Now that she knew his fear, Judith's relief made her slightly giddy. I never thought of it before, but I suppose someone could have slipped into your wife's room while I was out and laid the doll on her pillow, then taken it away before you came down. A stifled groan was the only sign that he had heard her. I remember now that Thorne slept in the trundle bed that night, just beyond the door that connected with Miss Abigail's room. He too remembered. The lines in his face, the pain in his eyes, were proof of his tortured thinking. She could have seen me go upstairs, Judith went on, and seized the opportunity while I was out of the room. And of course she could have tied a velvet ribbon around the doll's neck. After all, she's little more than a child— She'd naturally dress her dolly in the current fashion, but that doesn't prove your wife actually saw the doll on her pillow. I still think she was suffering from hallucination. Do you really believe that? His eyes pleaded desperately for assurance. Judith weighed for a second one alternative of self-interest against another. Then she saw that by erasing the man's fear, she could bind him heart and mind to herself. Yes, Mr. Tomlinson, I I do, for when I came downstairs again that night, I found Thorn in the trundle bed, fast asleep. She could hardly have left her bed in the meantime and fallen asleep so quickly. God bless you, Judith, for telling me that. For the second time in their acquaintance, he had called her Judith, and it had been curiously as on that other occasion when she had relieved his anxiety about Thorn. He was able to talk now without restraint. You don't know what thoughts I've had. God, forgive me. But Abigail hated her so, made her life so miserable. You could hardly blame the child if she had held enmity in return. I was afraid she might have been tempted to work on Abigail's insane superstition. She's very bright, you know. But now... He looked at Judith with wet eyes. This may sound strange coming from a man who has just buried his wife, but I think I love you, Judith, for your kindness to my poor little thorn. Judith sat very still, uncertain what kind of declaration of love this might be. I am very fond of thorn, Mr. Tomlinson. I know you are. That's why it will be a personal loss to both of us not to have you teaching at Timberley next year. So unprepared was Judith for this shock that she cried sharply. Not teach at Timberley? What do you mean? Al Carpenter has recovered. 
He wants the school back. And I'm to be turned out to accommodate him? Just in time, she remembered that she would gain nothing by a display of shrewish temper. She asked in a different tone. Haven't I given satisfaction? You have indeed, but Mr. Carpenter has many friends in the district, and a male teacher is always preferred. You understood the position was only temporary, didn't you? There was no argument on this point, but Judith had trusted to her gambler's luck that Al Carpenter might be permanently disabled. Then you've known for some time that I was going to be let out? Frustrated anger rose in her throat, tears of disappointment in her eyes. I've known since Christmas, said Richard. Why didn't you tell me? He looked at her with such disarming kindness that her anger melted. I didn't want to give you bad news until I had something to offer you in its place. Hope rose again. He had waited till after his wife's death because he had something to offer. She whispered, What do you mean? I have found you a school near Stanton. Oh? Stoughton was in another county. Judith studied her slim, white hands. This was March. Rural school was out in April, so that the bigger boys could help with spring plowing. She would have had to work fast, or everything would have been done in vain. It is good of you, Mr. Tomlinson, to go out to so much trouble on my account. I know I should be happy to have the promise of a school at Staunton. And I would be if it weren't for leaving Thorn. I'm afraid when I'm gone that your mother will send her to Kentucky. Mother send Thorn away? Oh, no, mother has no grudge against the child. I don't mean that, said Judith gently. I stayed with the children that night. Miss Abigail died. Thorne was very nervous. I had to take her up to my room. Your boys never woke up. I was sitting with them when your mother came upstairs. He seemed touched by that. I told Miss Anne about Thorne, and she said a strange thing, Mr. Tomlinson. She said, I'm too old to bring up so young a child. Too old and too tired. But Thorne is much older than my boys. He looked puzzled. Thorn is a girl, explained Judith delicately. Girls in their teens are sometimes difficult. That is what your mother meant. He sat in troubled silence. The brooding look came back into his eyes. Your mother is no longer young, Mr. Tomlinson. Three children are no small job. Your boys are her grandsons and no trouble to her because she's had them from infancy and understands them. But Thorn has a peculiar background. Your mother can hardly be blamed for feeling she's unequal to the task of bringing her up. But she doesn't need bringing up. All she needs is love and a little patience. I agree with you. Judith's eyes were sparkling with moisture. If you could have seen how she clung to me that night, like a child to her mother, he said naively, You're rather young to be Thorne's mother. And then flushed as he realized what he had said. But he looked at Judith with pleasure, as though discovering beauty where he had seen none before. Something that had stretched like a delicate cord between them from the beginning tightened like a bowstring. Was it mutual love for an orphan girl, or was it something more personal? 
He was not a vain man, but it was impossible not to know that this charming young woman had practically offered to become his wife. Miss Judith, this is neither the time nor the place for me to speak of what should not even be in my mind at this moment. My wife's death, and before that, her long illness, has been too sad a thing for me ever again to give much thought to personal happiness. But with three children on my hands, I realize that I must in time make other plans for the future. He paused in his lengthy, stilted speech, and every pulse in Judith's body seemed suspended. I can't speak of those plans at the present, but someday, if you are kind enough to listen, I should like to talk to you about them. Judith said, How can you talk to me if I'm at Staunton? He looked at her with a faint trace of his old mischief. Perhaps we shall meet again in Terre Haute next fall and see a Shakespeare play together. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, a.k.a. Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hi. My name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. Hi, my name is Zane Telch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, and I'm the voice of Ricky. Hello, my name is David Boisvert. I'm a musician who currently resides in the Nashville, Tennessee area. I'm a saxophonist, keyboardist, and vocalist for three bands that play in and around Nashville, as well as the Southeast U.S., and have session recorded for a variety of local artists. It was my pleasure to record the songs Rock of Ages and Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow on piano. I'm pleased to say that Valerie is my cousin, and I'm so proud of her for producing Valerie's Variety podcast, as well as her audiobooks. I'm grateful to be a part of this project, and I hope you have enjoyed listening as much as I have. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. Millie Stark's speculations took voice. Steppin' mighty free and easy now, Miss Abby's dead, ain't ya? Better watch out. He did not want her changed, ever. 
He grew quite warm thinking about it and looked down at her half fearfully as though expecting to find some change already occurred. The room was filled with men Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but we're unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.